Hey, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cutrera Show for Friday, January the 8th. Coming up, we're going to talk to a political science expert about conspiracy theories and how they play into the violence like we saw on Wednesday when uh, Trump supporters stormed the Capitol building. And there's been a disturbance in the polar vortex. We'll talk with Anthony Farnell about what this means about our weather situation in the coming week or so. But first, Dr. Isaac Bogosh, infectious disease physician, joins the show right now. Oh, it's good to have you on, doctor. I always have so many questions that I, I want to ask. I don't know where to start. I'm, wherever you go, I'll, I'll just follow along. All right. Let's start out with the promising news on the vaccine front when it comes to uh, new research suggests that Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine can protect against the mutation found in the variants of the coronavirus that have come out of the UK and South Africa. My question to you is, how are they able to test these variants so quickly with the Pfizer vaccine? Yeah, so they can do this. So I think we have to be very careful here. It looks, we have to, I'm sort of going to couch this a bit. It looks like the Pfizer vaccine will be effective against those variants, but there are still some other mutations uh, that have not yet been tested either. So, you know, it's not a green light. It's more of a yellow light. What they can do is they can, in a laboratory setting, look at the immune response to those variants and they can measure an immune response to those variants um it, more in a laboratory setting not in not in a real world setting but there's like a tremendous correlation if you're mounting an appropriate immune response you're gonna you're doing something right so uh it's it's very very likely that this pfizer vaccine won't be an issue there won't be an issue with the pfizer vaccine on these variants i don't think the the chapter isn't closed on that yet but it's starting to close. So arrows pointing in the right direction there. So this is research that's done basically in, you know, I, I'm not uh, privy to what happens in labs, but basically in Petri dishes. It's not happening, uh, you know, with actual people. Well, correct. The data that we're getting now is happening in Petri dishes. However, there are also ongoing data looking at people who have been immunized and they're following those individuals closely to see, is anyone reinfected? We know some people will get reinfected. Of course, some people will get reinfected. The trials that don't, you know, the, the, these vaccines don't provide 100% protection. Uh, but you can also study the uh, if, there, if people are reinfected with variants, and you can study immune responses as well. So there's this, by sort of triangulating the, the lab work with the human work, you can get a much better understanding. The human work takes a little bit more time, but unfortunately... Or fortunately, depending on what perspective you take, there's no shortage of COVID-19 infections. So you'll be able to address that a little bit sooner rather than later. So, Dr. Bogosh, we know you're a member of uh, Ontario's Vaccine Task Force. So you're in the know. What you, uh, Premier Ford has been saying, we're running out of vaccines. Uh, hello, Trudeau, we need more. Just, uh, you know, send us more vaccines. What do you know about uh, news on the vaccine front? Well, you know, I, I was, you know, I know I sit on the task force, but I was actually kind of public, kind of, I was publicly critical about the slow start. I don't think that was unique to Ontario, although it certainly was slow in Ontario. There was a slow start from coast to coast. Vaccines don't do any good sitting in freezers. They need to get in arms. Luckily, uh, over the last, not really luckily, with because of organization and planning, uh, the vaccine mobilization has ramped up dramatically over the last three days. I think yesterday... Uh, over 15,000 were administered, and the counting isn't perfect because, uh, don't laugh me off this call, but it's in, in, in many of the long-term care facilities, they're still doing paper requisitions, and then they'll enter the data later. That's important because while paper is, is stupid and we should all be digital, if they did do it digitally, it would actually take longer for reasons that we don't need to go into now, but likely reasons that will be 
uh, repaired later on. So the right. goal is get vaccines in arms, get vaccines in arms as fast as possible. The last few days have been, quite frankly, pretty pretty decent. So uh, arrows, again, just like that other thing we are chatting about, arrows pointing in the right direction in terms of significant improvement on that front. Yeah, it's great to get the vaccines in arms, but then we don't want to lull. So do we know anything about, uh, you know, getting new supply? Well, yeah, I don't really see it. Perception is interesting. Like, there's the supply isn't really an issue in the sense that the federal government is going to be giving vaccines to the provinces. That's what they do. And we have a steady but small supply coming in internationally. So we know how much we're going to get on a weekly basis. And that's and that's what's happening. So I think you can sort of see this as a success in the sense that if you're administering all your vaccines before the next supply comes in, that's good. I mean, you're getting needles into arms quickly. Um, you know, the federal government, quite frankly, I mean, I, I think they've done a, a pretty decent job. Right? We were talking if we were at having this conversation two months ago, we would have been saying, you know, oh, we're probably going to get vaccines in the first quarter of 2021. When someone tells me that, that means March. That means March. And we started putting needles in arms in Canada on December 14th. So, you know, yeah, of course, we'd always all want more vaccine. But we did start vaccine programs months before we thought we were. And every little bit counts. I mean, it's going into long-term care. This is responsible for 75 to 80 percent of the deaths we've had in the country. So it's, it's not really all that bad. Of course, we need more supply, but, but we'll make do with what we've got. Dr. Bogosh, one of the big headline stories today is that Ontario hospitals are being told to free up space and prepare for possible transfer of patients from other regions, you know, where hospitals are bulging with patients, like in, you know, in the greater Toronto area. How big of an undertaking is this? And could this potentially put other regions at risk of COVID numbers spiking if we're moving patients from more populated regions? Yeah, it's 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 tough. This is a tough place to be. It's not nice to pat anyone on the back and say, way to go for being right. But many people were saying the holiday season is going to be, uh, you know, basically punctuated with many, many, many transmission events as people gather for the holiday season. And it's now about two weeks after the holiday season began and we're seeing these spikes in cases. We know hospitals are, are getting overwhelmed in many parts of the province. We know ICUs are full in many parts of the province. You have to move people around. You've got to care for people. So you just you just got to bite the bullet and do it. And yeah, could it lead to some uh, hospital outbreaks, especially in settings that have less COVID-19 burden? It certainly could. This is not ideal. This is the farthest thing from ideal. But you've got to do it so that you can care for the influx of patients that are coming in. Yesterday, the province uh, reversed their their stand on if kids would be going back to school on the 11th elementary students. And they said, no, we'll wait until uh, the 25th. So the kids will be remote learning again uh, for the next two weeks. Uh, I've heard that schools can act as amplifiers for COVID-19. Can you expand on that? If you get a bunch of people into an enclosed space and they're not adhering to public health measures, you certainly can amplify this infection. And we've seen outbreaks at schools. That's happened. Um, But when you've got such a huge community burden of infection, we know kids are going to be bringing it into the school with greater frequency. That's a tough place to be. There's no winners. There's no winners in this policy, right? You keep kids out of school. What's happening? Well, you're disproportionately impacting basically all mothers uh, in in Ontario. Any mother in Ontario is likely being disproportionately impacted by this policy. Uh, If you 
if you have kids in the school, you risk greater transmission of infection in the school. You risk uh, further <laughs> and further worsening the situation in Ontario, uh, which we already know the healthcare system is stretched beyond capacity. So there's no winner in this policy. This, I think they tried to take the lesser of two evils, and we'll see how this plays out over the next couple of weeks. Was this inevitable, do you think? Uh, I think a lot of this is avoidable. A lot mm-hmm. of this is avoidable. I mean, we could go back one month, three months, nine months and say, should have done this, could have done that. And we really, truly should have done this and could have done that and could have avoided a lot of the pain that we're in. Uh, we didn't. And uh, and now we're we're paying the price. I want to ask you really quickly, how much is that new COVID variant influencing these tougher measures? We're hearing a possibility of uh, consideration of a curfew in Ontario, like Quebec. Uh, maybe a little bit, but it, variant or no variant, we still have a ton of cases. We still have hospitals stretched beyond capacity. We still have an unacceptable number of deaths, uh, and it's not going to get better over the next couple of weeks. Uh, so, you know, I think they're they're not they're they're just taking every every step they can. Dr. Bogosh, thanks so much for your time. I always appreciate it. Nice to chat. Have a good one. We were talking about Donald Trump and how he took to Twitter today because he's finally unblocked. They locked him for 12 hours after Wednesday's uh, storming of the Capitol because they they suggested that, you know, he he was responsible through social media um, for, you know, whipping his uh, his base into a frenzy. And we know that he had been talking about the the rally and inviting people via social media. Um, to the rally on January 6th for a few weeks. So people were, I don't know if you saw the video of what flight attendants had to deal with, with Trump fans going to that rally. It was absolutely appalling and a lot of cases frightening. I, I feel for those flight attendants that had to deal with those people. They were unruly. They were rude. They were disruptive and downright scary at times. So uh, he's back on social media. Facebook and Instagram have blocked him for, uh, you know, until after the inauguration. I know Michelle Obama is calling for him to be banned uh, entirely, just off social media, given the boot. Uh, Russell Murhead is uh, a professor at Dartmouth University. With the, He's co-authored a book called A Lot of People Are Saying, which exposes the impact of conspiracy theories on democracy. He joins the show right now. Welcome to the show. Good to have you on. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Well, Russell, I was reading about, you know, how uh, someone wrote in The New Yorker, and it was an interesting article, that social media made the Trump insurrection a reality and that he should have been silenced long before um, he was silenced on Wednesday. Your thoughts on how social media has, has actually, you know, facilitated Trump and, you know, the extremists that follow him now? Social media is the most amazing technological revolution of my lifetime. It allows, you know, anybody to communicate anything to the entire world, to all 7 billion people in the world for free. I can put up a tweet and hundreds of millions of people can read it. You know, it used to cost a lot of money to disseminate information, to get space in a newspaper or time on a radio show. And there were producers and editors who decided what was worthy of being broadcast. They had asked questions like, is it true? And is it going to incite violence? And if it wasn't true or if it was going to incite violence, they would hesitate or refuse to broadcast something. That gatekeeping function is not present on Twitter. And we have a president who's been disseminating lies and inciting violence. And I think it's absolutely necessary that somehow, you know, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, 
create a gatekeeping function, the first step, I think, is to permanently ban this man from their platforms. You know, I think it's interesting. I heard that uh, Facebook and a lot of people that work at Facebook uh, got the word out that while uh, Wednesday's siege was occurring, that um, people at Facebook were talking to each other on a messaging board and apparently Zuckerberg shut them down. They weren't allowed to discuss anything, yet uh, Trump's been allowed to post and his followers have been allowed to post whatever they want uh, whenever they want for, you know, years now. That's right. I mean, it started a long time ago with, you know, Trump disseminating the idea, the conspiratorial idea that uh, Barack Obama wasn't born in the United States and was thus constitutionally ineligible to hold office and was installed really by a secret conspiratorial cabal that was trying to weaken America. And, you know, that kind of that kind of proposition just would not have gotten any airtime or wouldn't wouldn't have made it into The New York Times, let's just say, or The Washington Post. But it was easy for somebody like Donald Trump to disseminate it over Facebook. And, you know, again, this is this is going to this is an assault on democracy. Democracy won't survive unless these platforms adopt some kind of truth function. Now, you you talk about how online conspiracies can spark offline violence. We saw that happening on Wednesday in real time. You're saying that it could actually happen here as well, because I think we like to look at the states and uh, think to ourselves, well, that's not going to happen here. The key step in, facil- in, in converting online conspiracy into offline violence are officials, public officials, elected officials who have the trust of their own voters, and their own supporters, officials who go along with these conspiracies, who breathe life into them, who either repeat them or who quietly, coyly legitimate them. And that's been essential here in the United States. We've watched not just the president, but large numbers of people in his own party act as if it's plausible that the United States election of 2020 was stolen and was fraudulent. If officials had spoken truth to conspiracy, this violence would never have happened. So I, when I look north, I, I just hope that your public officials can can stand up and step up and speak truth. What do you make of this false flag theory that's that's floating around? I mean, immediately I thought to myself, uh, the false flag theory is basically that that was not uh, Trump supporters that um, were were sieging, uh, you know, the White House, uh, storming the White House. It was indeed uh, Black Lives Matter and Antifa dressed up as as Trump supporters and extremists. Um, that false flag theory to me falls flat when we have got people on social media identifying QAnon figures and these guys were posing and putting themselves out on social media um, and, and they have quite a quite big social media profiles already in existence. How does that, um, you know, allow that conspiracy theory to even exist? Doesn't it undermine it? I know. I know. I really, uh, this is one case where I think that, 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 effort to just erase reality, to bend facts to the point where they no longer exist, is just obviously not going to work. Um, But look, what we've seen in American politics and American public life is an assault on reality. It's not just like liberals and conservatives who stand far apart from each other in American politics. It's, I mean, the real gap now is between people who live in a world with facts, some of which aren't you know, ones we wish existed, and those who refuse to live in a world with facts. Well, even if they have the facts, they get contradictory facts to those facts, and they choose to pick and choose. Right, which is a way of just erasing reality. It's a way of right. refusing to live in the world. Look, 
to be mature, to be a grown human being, is to acknowledge that we inhabit a world in which there are lots of things we wish weren't quite the way they are, and to accommodate ourselves to those. That's what maturity and wisdom are all about. And, and, and what we're seeing is an absolute refusal to, to live in that world, a world in which there are real facts and events that, that happen. Maybe we, 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 we celebrate them. Maybe, you know, we, we wish they weren't true, but we acknowledge them. I was reading in this article that uh, this guy wrote in The New Yorker that I was talking about earlier on that uh, basically the states has become um, a country of deniers. Like they are in complete denial about who they are. And Biden going out and saying this is not who we are, this is not who we are, is more of the same. Do you think people have to, uh, including elected officials, come to the realization that this is exactly who America is. America is not one type of person or another type of person. America is extremely diverse with many people coming from different points of view. And until they actually come to terms with that, uh, America can never be uh, the world leader that it once was or reach its full potential. I love the way you put it. I mean, I really love the way you put it. It's a very diverse country, an intensely diverse country where people disagree about lots of things. And, and what democracy asks us to do is to disagree peacefully, constructively, at best, even lovingly. And, and that requires being willing to live in a world where we understand reality. Disagreement requires being in touch with reality. It doesn't. And so this, this erasure of reality is actually a, a, a refusal to disagree, a refusal to be in a world where we live with other people we disagree with. And it's kind of insulting to people that have different views, right? And you can see where they then become extreme because they feel like they're not being heard. And when you feel like you're being heard, at least the other side can start to talk to you reasonably. And maybe then you'll see, oh, okay, I get it. I I see your point of view. But if you feel like you're not being heard at all, it's very easy to get hurt. And then once you're you're operating from a point of, uh, you know, uh, being wounded, Things can go south very quickly. And I think we saw a lot of individuals that have, you know, uh, felt that they have been wronged and wounded uh, storming on that Capitol building in a a moment that is a very dark day in American history. Yeah, I think you put it so incisively. And and being heard is is one thing. I think we all have a a legitimate expectation to being heard. Um, Dominating our political community, even though there are lots of people that disagree with us, is another thing. And one of the things that you know, democratic citizens have to be willing to do is to be heard without necessarily always getting their way. Here we are Friday, January the 8th, and we're right back to it with Anthony Farnell, Global's chief meteorologist. Anthony, welcome to the program. Thanks for sparing some time for us. Oh, thanks for having me on this morning. So the reason why I reached out to you is I, uh, an article caught my eye last night. The polar vortex has been disrupted. What does that bode <laughs> is the headline. And basically it goes on to say during each dark winter, the Arctic's polar vortex, strong winds that circle westward around the pole, come to life in the stratosphere. It's a normal reoccurring winter phenomenon. But every year we get this big spin up and then it disappears but this year, it looks like that polar vortex has gotten thrown out of whack. What does that mean when the vortex gets thrown out of whack? Are we looking at, at chillier weather? Are we looking at milder weather? What's in store? Yeah, well, it's, it's not straightforward. Like many things in uh, meteorology, you have to look at the big picture, the entire planet. So uh, one thing that we look at is when this gets disrupted, it basically means that uh, warmer temperatures are moving up over the pole. And as that occurs, the polar vortex gets disrupted and it tends to break apart. In this case, it will be likely two pieces, one headed down towards Europe, another section 
probably coming into North, North America and perhaps around the Great Lakes, but not until later this month. So we're going to be seeing um, that occur, I think, and that's going to lead to cold and snow, but it's still about seven to 10 days away. Okay, like how cold could we get? You know, Anthony, I remember one time we had that, I don't know how many years ago it was, but back in the olden days when we were allowed to travel, I went to Mexico during a polar vortex. It was freezing. Like, good luck. You, you better have brought in a couple pair of pants or you were not enjoying yourself. Yeah, so I, I mean, heading down to Mexico, I guess we don't have to worry about what they're dealing with this year. But for us, uh, the polar vortex has made appearances in the past. In fact, a couple of times in the past decade or so, we have seen it arrive. And if it occurs in late January or early February, that's typically the coldest time of the year to begin with. And then you add these temperatures coming, in some cases, from Siberia over. Uh, it can lead to minus 30s, minus 40s, something we, we haven't, wind chills, wind chills, but something we haven't seen uh, for the past couple of winters. I'm not guaranteeing that, but once you get that vortex disrupted over the pole, it means the cold air is on the move, and then we just have to track where it's going. And already some extreme weather happening uh, for our neighbors in Europe, Madrid getting a monster snowstorm today, something they haven't seen in decades. So we're going to see some extreme weather. It's just a matter of when this winter. The silver lining for people that have been upset about the fact that their outdoor rinks aren't freezing is that your rinks may freeze within the next week to 10 days. Yeah, and uh, already we've seen uh, this morning places like Muskoka minus 21. So we're we're getting into that more typical January weather. Daytime highs are, are still pleasant thanks to the sunshine that we're going to be seeing through much of the weekend. So if you are planning that backyard rink, you love the cold nights, I still think we're about a week away before we start to see daytime highs consistently below zero as well. But we're going to get a, a nice stretch of winter coming up if you love this type of weather. I do, actually, in short doses. Uh, you're going to have that for the second half of January and possibly into February as well. All right, Anthony, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Have a great day. All right, you too. See you, Kelly. Cheers. Hey, thanks so much for tuning into the program. Always a pleasure having you with us. Have yourself a fantastic weekend.